Hi, my name is Simon Luckhurst and this is Biological Poker, the first season of Ear Movies. This story is called Deus Ex Coke Machina. The ancient Greeks went to the theatre a lot. I mean, no TV, radio, New Weekly or Netflix, so what else were you going to do while you were sitting around waiting for the Persians to invade again? In their amphitheatres, sometimes perched on the sides of mountains, the protagonists often faced impossible situations just a few minutes before the end. At that point, a god would swoop down, rescue them and solve everything. The actual mechanics involved an actor suspended by a rope pretending to be God hanging off something that held them over the stage. They were literally the God in the machine, which in ancient Greek translates as Deus Ex Machina. You might have seen the sweatshirts. But at some point in my head I'd come up with the title Deus Ex Coke Machina, the God in the Coke machine. This story came from the name, I'm actually surprised no one has used it before. I've worked with Michael Thompson professionally on a few projects and thought he'd come up with just the right voice for this story. Someone who feels in control, yet who is always slightly surprised to find he's not. Sometime after I wrote it, my dad was dying and my brother and sister had been reading him a story about rural England where he'd grown up. One night though, he asked me to read him one of my stories and this was the one I chose. To be honest, by then I think he was too far gone to have properly understood it as it was read to him over two nights. But I hope that some of the meaning and the hope seep through. It's kind of special to me because of that though. Deuce ex coke machina. Pete Munro blamed the house. They'd been there too long. It had grown too small around them. It had started shrinking as soon as he and Lauren had taken over the lease when Jimmy and Lisa moved out. That had been 11 years earlier. He walked through the back streets of Newtown towards Erskineville Station, the quickest way to work. The walk to Newtown Station was four minutes longer, and forget taking a bus up King Street if you wanted to arrive in your own lifetime. The morning was blustery, the edge of winter. According to the TV, a low-pressure system was sitting not far off the coast. There was another in his heart as well. Maybe he should break up with Lauren. The practicalities of it, though. Who'd move out? He couldn't manage the rent on his own. Would he find someone else? The thought of living with a stranger didn't fill him with glee. Or if she stayed, where would he go? And then there were all the other details. The packing and moving and working out who owned what. Would he take the iron if she kept the blender? Their finances were so intertwined and they'd had a joint account for years. And then there were Simon and Consuela to consider. Who would they live with? They couldn't be split up with Pete and Lauren taking one each. That wouldn't be right. Pete knew Lauren would hate not having them around. But then, so would he. It was just all too hard. But their fights were awful. The shouting, the things they said and called each other. Mornings were always a danger zone, especially Mondays. Pete couldn't deal with Lauren's faffing. That's what he called it. And she hated how he lay in bed until the last possible moment and then got ready for work at Olympic speed. The rain was heavy and cold. He had his winter coat on, the thick waterproof one. He hadn't worn a hat, and the drops landed determinedly on his forehead. He wiped the rain away, the action reminding him how his hairline was slowly receding. Advancing towards the rear, Lauren had joked once. He was unimpressed by her comment and the betrayal of his jeans both. A small truck squeezed through the narrow car line street. Pete looked at the driver, lost in concentration. Concentration wasn't the only thing he was lost in. You could spend half a day driving through the maze of Newtown's back streets and still not make it through to Erskineville Road. It was a giant psychologist's experiment with the perceived freedom of a two-lane road as your ultimate reward, if you ever made it and didn't get one-way streeted back onto King Street. This morning's fight had started innocuously enough. He'd merely commented that the kitchen looked good, but she'd taken his compliment as an insult. You think I don't tidy enough, she said. You think I'm messy. All I said was the kitchen looked nice. It was the way you said it, though, with that snide look. What snide look? The one you have. You know the one I mean. They'd kicked off from there, 
a five-minute screamer that they'd both walked away from before any significant damage was done. But it had lain there the rest of the morning until he'd left. Argument roadkill, with the cats sniffing around it, as if trying to see if anything had survived. Lauren wasn't home by the time he returned from work. Was it yoga or meeting about the refugees or drinks with work? He couldn't remember. He thought about calling her, but didn't. Worried she'd think he wasn't interested in her enough to have paid attention when she'd told him where she was going. Or that she'd think he was being controlling by trying to find out when she'd be home. Really, he just wanted to know whether he should cook for two. He fed the cats, then seeing as it was seven, ducked around the corner and bought some Thai. He wolfed it down and hid the remains, knowing they were supposed to be saving to go away next year. A reminder went off on his phone. He had to ring his mother. He'd been putting it off for weeks, but really, you could only get away with it for so long. He poured himself a wine, something else verboten for a Monday, and settled back on the couch. Peter, it's been so long since you called. As if she was incapable of dialing. It's been busy, Mum. This is the first night I haven't been late back from work for Yonks. An outright lie. When are you going to visit? She lived in Nambucca Heads, inconveniently situated too far away for an easy visit and much too close to be considered an exotic getaway. I'm thinking about Easter, he said. The highway's always so packed then, she told him. Anyway, I'll probably have Phoebe here. Phoebe was her old school friend. I'll have to sort it out with work then, he said. How's things anyway? My back's been worse. And Daniel, who does my garden, is still away. And I think I have a leak in the laundry. Her usual litany of complaints. Just for once, couldn't she describe a happy event? Talk about someone or something she actually liked? It hadn't always been like this. They'd been close until well into his thirties. But something had happened, and he'd stopped enjoying their conversations. Visits turned into opportunities for her to remind him of his flaws and failures. They'd drifted apart much further than the distance between Newtown and Nambucca Heads. Sometimes he missed her. Not who she was now. But the chats they'd used to have when she'd been interested in what he was doing and he'd been interested in her activities too. Peter? Sorry, Mum. Got distracted by one of the cats. Sounds like you want to spend more time with them than with me. He did, actually. I'll look into coming up on the June long weekend. That'd be lovely. I'd better go now. My show is coming on. Q&A. She loved bloody Q&A. It was why he'd scheduled the call for Monday night. I'll let you go. Thanks for calling, she said. I wish you lived closer. It would make it much simpler when I have problems with the house. Possibly it was the most honest thing either had said during the entire conversation. He was so bored he watched Q&A. He'd gone to bed by the time Lauren came in after 11 He lay in the dark with eyes closed, knowing by the way she spoke to the cats that she was drunk. Pooty, 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 I thought I saw a pooty tat. I did see a pooty tat. Once he had thought it was so cute. She clattered around the kitchen making a cheese toasty, her go-to late-night snack. She could get upset when she was like this, and he didn't want this morning's fight to kick off again. So he pretended to be sleeping when she came upstairs. Like clockwork, he knew everything that was going to happen next. She'd drop her phone on the bed, and then she'd look for her nightie. Drawers being opened and then rustle, rustle, rustle as she undressed. Stomp, stomp, stomp as she headed to the bathroom. Couldn't she ever go to the bathroom first? Into bed like it was a bloody trampoline. Then five minutes setting her alarm, the glow of her phone like a nuclear sunrise. Then finally she'd jerk slightly once or twice and drift effortlessly into sleep. He envied how easily she did this, like a switch. Sometimes it took him hours. If he was lucky, she wouldn't snore. The final part of the triangle, which was not the life he had planned, Lauren and his mother being two sides of it, was his job as junior financial officer at Mendelssohn's Waste Water Treatment Facility. Somehow in a world where workplace practices had evolved to include flexi time, working from home, shorter working weeks, casual clothes and standing desks, his job had never evolved from the 1950s. It was a wonder he didn't turn to black and white as he walked through the door. Mendelssohn's wasn't the full Don Draper, but it was undeniably a bloody long way from Google. Doug Mendelssohn, the owner, liked to see ties, iron shirts and shiny shoes. Pete was expected to be at his desk ready to work by 9am, 
have half an hour for lunch and finish at 5.30. All up, he'd been at Mendelssohn's for 15 years and he regularly told himself that the first 20 years would probably be the worst. He'd tried many times to find another position, but without access to referees other than his current employer, and he knew Doug would send him to hell and beyond if he sniffed a whiff of employment treachery, and with quite a narrow skill set given the repetitive nature of his role, he'd never found anything else. The job paid just enough to maintain his lifestyle, but not enough for him to save. Each week was pretty much identical to the last, monitor output and input, calculate estimated productivity versus actuality, subtract deductions from the inevitable production failures when repairs to the creaky old plant were carried out. It was just engaging enough that he didn't go mad with boredom, but a million miles from the creativity or passion he craved. The plant was located in a quiet corner of an industrial estate in the unfashionable end of Zetland. Pete brought his lunch with him, or had a sandwich or pie from the decrepit pub a block away. Staring at the cloudy beer he would also occasionally buy there, he would sometimes wonder which side of the wastewater treatment process the hotel actually sat on. Half a block in the other direction was a bus stop, and behind the stop, in a little alcove, was an old Coke machine. Pete called it the machine that Coke forgot. It was stocked regularly enough, but while newer machines had digital lettering and credit card readers, this one had faded signs next to each worn button, and a slot with a lever you pulled out to place coins in. It was a Coke machine that he imagined David Attenborough would one day stumble upon to wonder softly how it had survived in a Galapagos industrial suburb. Pete wasn't that keen on Coke, but sometimes needed an excuse for some exercise. Not that it was much of a walk along a street lined by decaying factory units and run-down houses. Fences had low skirts of litter piled against them, and yards were filled with remnants. Old caravans, patched-up boats, and half-stripped cars. A metaphor for my life, Pete sometimes told himself. One afternoon, the voice of God spoke to Pete through the Coke machine. He was fumbling through his pockets looking for a ten-cent piece when he heard it. It was pure, strong, and while neither male nor female, undeniably reminiscent of Morgan Freeman. You don't need another ten cents. Pete looked all around, trying to work out where the voice was coming from. There was no one in sight. A shabby black dog lay beside a car with a faded defect notice and no wheels, but the dog was the only living thing he could see. Pete kept searching. The machine sighed. I said you don't need another coin. Just push the slider in. Pete went to disagree, but the machine raised its eyebrow as if to say, are you really going to argue with me? Of course, the machine didn't have eyebrows or even eyes, nor did it move at all but somehow the impression was of a raised eyebrow. Pete pushed the slider, knowing it wouldn't work. A can of Coke dropped into the chute. Pete looked at it. Aren't you going to say thank you, said the voice. Thanks, Pete muttered, confused and still looking at the can. Not the can, you idiot. Me, the machine. Pete slowly looked up. Something about the machine had changed. It was like it was glowing, but without a glow. Now I have your attention, the machine said. Who are you? You know me as God. Other people have other names for me, but you, Peter Monroe, would call me God. Yes, the one of the Old Testament and father to Jesus. Pete smiled and looked around for the reality TV crew, or even just a crazed YouTuber with a phone. There's no one watching. It's me, God. I appear to everyone at some time of their life. Some listen. Others ignore me completely and wouldn't see me if I was a 20-ton truck heading straight towards them. Sometimes I am a 20-ton truck, of course, but usually by then it's too late for them. Here's a little trick I used to convince the skeptics. Suddenly the machine turned into a bright burning bush. Despite standing right next to it, Pete felt no heat. The flames were cold, if anything. Then suddenly the fire became a hard metal coke machine again. Just to check... Pete looked around. There was still no one to be seen. The dog stretched leisurely and rolled on its side. Pete looked back at the machine. The burning bush, remember? Yeah, I remember. So God is in a Coke machine. The machine sighed again, as if truly exasperated. Would you mind just explaining it once more, please? Pete asked. I don't think I'm getting it. It's simple, said the machine. I appear to people in a way they can best understand. Well, 
I guess if you'd have appeared to Abraham as a Coke machine, it probably wouldn't have gone too well. It was Moses, but yes, that's the general principle. What do other people get? The machine laughed. You're having a one-on-one with the supreme being, maker and destroyer of worlds, lord of all that is and will ever be, owner of the holy uppercase initial caps, and that is the question you're asking. Pete looked at the machine, which appeared far more regal at that moment than any Coke machine ever had a right to be. How many questions am I allowed? Pete asked. Are you like a genie and I only get three? Genies grant wishes, not questions. But how many do I get? You get as many as you need, which is lucky for you because if you only had three, you'd have wasted your quota already. Pete thought for a moment. If you're the supreme lord and everything, omniscient and all, why don't you just tell me what I need to know? The machine looked at him in a way so that, for a moment, Pete was quite scared. If I told you what you wanted to know, you'd never understand. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Thanks. What would I know? The machine had definitely started to pout. You'd better return to work. Your boss is looking for you. But I'll be back again in a few days. Try and think of something useful to ask, all right? Pete nodded and walked back towards the factory. About a hundred meters down the road, he realized he'd forgotten his Coke and ran back to get it. Oops, he said. Didn't remember my drink. The machine sat there, quiet and dusty and oblivious. Huh, omniscient, Pete muttered. Stretched across the pavement, the dog stared at him benignly for a moment and then began to heartily lick between its rear legs. hadn't had a religious upbringing and couldn't remember the last time he'd been in a church. He had some vague recollections of his grandmother singing hymns to him at the piano when he was very young. He was mesmerized not by the words but by the candles. His ex, Steph, had flirted with Buddhism and burnt incense. But that and his grandmother's hymns were about the sum total of his spiritual experience. He didn't think it really qualified him for one-on-one time with the big guy. Pete didn't tell Lauren about the coke machine. He didn't think she'd get it. She was home when he arrived after work, noisily putting the dishes away, making a point of the fact he'd said he'd do it in the morning. He realized she must have timed it for him to come home, just to make sure the message got across. Hey hun, how was your day? He asked, pretending not to notice what she was doing. Horrible. Cindy is a critical, unfeeling bitch. Karen is pathetic and either ignores what's happening or is too stupid to notice. I honestly don't know how much longer I can stand it there. Pete knew she'd leave soon. They'd limp along for a while on his income and get behind on a few bills before she'd find something just as inappropriate. Then they'd have to play financial catch-up and would struggle to get ahead in time for the next employment meltdown. Suddenly, she was in his arms and crying. I hate it, Pete. I really hate it. He knew she was seeking his permission to leave. Not that he needed to give it, She'd certainly walked away from jobs before without talking to him about it. But coming to him first was now part of the pattern. Really, she was just letting him know what stage of the cycle she was in. If you need to get a new job, hun, then you should. Maybe try and find it before you leave the old one, though, so we can try and keep our financial heads above water. Can we go out tonight? Go to the Indian? He asked. Pete, I've done something bad. What? (laughs) I've already quit. They'd been through this often enough that he knew the best thing to do was just let it go. Once he would have been upset and gone on about how she'd let them down and put them in difficult circumstances. He understood her well enough now to know that discussing money at this point would only lead to another fight. He thought about changing the subject by telling her he'd been talking to God in a vending machine so they could explore the ramifications of that for a while, but couldn't begin to imagine the level of disdain she'd show. Not just that he'd obviously gone quite mad, but that they should be talking about her. It was her drama, her scene, her desire for validation. She took a while to get dressed and he finished putting the dishes away. He sat on the lounge with Simon on his lap and Consuela looking at them from the other chair. No, look at you three, Lauren said when she came back into the room. He hoped like hell she wasn't going to talk about having babies again. 
He had a beef vindaloo, hot as hell and delicious. She had a veggie korma. They'd bought a bottle of red on the way, and he thought that their conversation was remarkably mellow given the events of the day for both of them. But then something happened. I need to talk to you about something, Petey. Her hand was on his arm and she was looking at him intently. Something other than quitting? He asked. If she was calling him Petey, it was pretty serious. She rarely called him that these days. Rarely called him anything other than Pete. And you stupid bastard. Although once he'd been Han and Dahl and Sweetie. Will I like it? He asked. She smiled, then looked to her wine glass. He caught her signal and topped it up. Where are we going? She asked. We've been together all this time, but where are we headed? Are we going to live like this, you in your dead-end job, and me in another with barely enough money to see us through, and no children, and how many cats will we go through? There'd been Moxie before Simon. I don't know, he said. Are you unhappy? He knew she was. He was kind of numb these days, but she carried a moroseness that hung off her like an old caftan. She looked to her wine again, grabbed it, and took a sip. I don't know what to do, she said. He thought she'd say more, offer some explanation for not being able to talk about it, but there was nothing. Yeah, it's... What was it? It wasn't what they'd planned, but they'd never really planned much. Other people had happier lives, but some had sadder ones. He thought about getting old, doing the same thing every day. He looked at Lauren, her eyes glistening with the beginnings of tears. We're in a bit of a rut, he said to her. You'll find something new, and then maybe we can plan that trip. Bali? Maybe Thailand? She was staring at him intently. Do you feel anything? She asked. He knew it was dangerous to feel. There was a lot down there, and you didn't really want to look at it too much, let alone stir it around and let it get out. But he wasn't satisfied with where things were going either. We're in inner city limbo. We have enough income to cover our debts, usually, but not enough to move forward. I mean, forget buying a place. We're just chasing the cheese. Rats in a treadmill running towards the rewards of a future they could never reach. Every day, another revolution of the wheel. The real tragedy was that they didn't even really know what the cheese looked like. What they were really chasing. It was bleak when you thought of it like that. He looked around the restaurant and at Lauren, the other customers, the waitstaff. They were all rats, he realised, all in separate cages pretending they weren't in cages. It couldn't be like that for everyone, could it? It was with some trepidation that he approached the Coke machine the following day. He had his change in his right hand. He didn't know what he'd find. Would he have another conversation with the Supreme Being? Or would the machine be dusty and mute? Or was he just going mad? The same mangy dog he'd seen the previous day was again lying sprawled across the dirty footpath. He went around it and it barely raised its head to watch him. He stood before the machine. Should he bow, he wondered. He knocked gently and waited. Nothing. He put his money in the slot, pushed a button, heard a clunk as a can was spat out. The can was cold. He stared at the machine. Hello, he whispered. Is anybody there? He walked back to the office, disappointed. He had the monthly report to finalise, but the figures on the screen were like ants which jumped and moved around, and he kept having to corral them within the cells of the spreadsheet. Some were easier to trap than others, His thoughts kept returning to the Coke machine. God had said they'd speak again. But he, or she, had also said that he, or she, only appeared to each person once in their lifetime, and that they'd learn from the encounter what they needed to. Was an appearance one conversation or a series? Why wasn't God there today? What did Pete himself need to learn? He thought of what Lauren had asked when she wanted to know where they were going. Where were they going? He didn't want to be a rat in a wheel. Could God find him a better life? His reverie was interrupted by Doug Mendelson, the factory owner. Doug was the kind of boss who had his hands in every pie. 
he was as much at home in his office as he was on the factory floor. Pete had found him more than once with a mop in hand, or a broom or a spanner, locked into some unnecessary menial task because he still had pride in the plant, for all its smells and rusty, creaky machinery. I need a word, Pete. Sure, said Pete. Just let me save this. The ant numbers were still now, aligned in their rows and columns, behaving themselves again. He followed Doug to his office. Doug wasted no time. Bad news, Pete. Gary's got pancreatic cancer. Gary was the plant manager. That's terrible, Pete said. Is there a prognosis? Not good, I'm afraid. He's only 62. Helen's devastated. He has another grandchild on the way and they don't know if he'll live to see it. Doug had ushered Pete into the room. And although Pete had sat down in the chair before the desk, Doug was still standing at the door. Only now did he shut it and walk slowly into the room. I hate to be pragmatic at a time like this, but with Gary gone, I need someone to step into his shoes. I'd like you to think about it. Me? You know the plant better than anyone, except me and Gary, and Earl, but you know. Glug, 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 glug. Earl was a top bloke, but a functional alcoholic. Lately, it seemed he wasn't so functional. He was coming in later and leaving earlier. His long lunches were legendary, but in the past few months, he'd been staggering rather than walking back into the office. What do you think? Doug asked. Pete looked at him. Gary had worked long hours to keep the factory going. He was often in at six and stayed at his desk a good 12 hours. You wouldn't be quite on Gary's pay scale when you started, but but you wouldn't be far behind. I believe in rewarding effort, so once I saw you'd got up to speed, your pay would reflect that. But like I said, even when you start, you'll get a decent bump up from your current level. What do you think? It was all so sudden. Well, I've done the role when Gary's been on leave. Of course, there weren't any great decisions to make then, but I think I'd be able to do it. Yeah, that's what I reckon too. I don't expect you to make your mind up now though. Come back to me on Monday with your answer. Okay? They shook hands and then he was out the door again. The money would be great, but he hated the thought of the long hours. And it wasn't an easy job. Gary had kept on top of the paperwork and the meetings and dealing with the million emergencies that sprang out of the rusty water pipes daily by skipping lunch and looking continually drawn. It had cost him over the years. Pete wondered if it had contributed to his cancer. Did he want that for himself? and then at 62 have only a few pain-filled months left. But what was the alternative? His comfortable but ultimately unrewarding current position, and having Doug replace him with someone who did want to progress. At least this way, the stress of Lauren's failure to earn would be alleviated. Her question came back to him again. Where were they going? On Friday afternoon, without thinking, he went up the road to the vending machine. Something had changed. This time, he knew God was waiting for him. For just a second, he wondered whether the inside of the machine was like a TARDIS, with heaven located on the same level as the Fanta, purgatory would be Sprite, and hell. Was Coke what they drank in hell? Pete, how are you? Confused. Yes, you are. I'd forgotten you're all-knowing. The machine winked at him. Don't worry, your secrets are safe with me. Sorry about, you know, all the sins I've done. God laughed. (laughs) You're not nearly as bad as some people. Not a single murder on your hands. And between me and you, half the things you think of as sin aren't really so bad. Pete looked around, but once again no one was there to witness him talking to a coke machine. Only the old dog, now vigorously licking its balls. So you're in a bit of a pickle. What to do with Lauren and your job? Got any advice? The Coke machine shrugged. Let's just say that you're shortly going to be faced with another challenge as well. Just follow your heart. Always a good rule of thumb. Maybe people should follow their thumbs instead. (laughs) The wisdom of the existential hitchhiker. What if you don't know what your heart wants? Pete asked. Then you're not listening hard enough. As if on cue, the dog raised an ear. There's pros and cons, though. I love Lauren, 
I think I do, but I'm not sure I'm in love with her. And while I'd like the money I could get with the new position, will I be happy? Tricky, said God. Not trying to be funny or anything, but is that all you've got? Just that I thought as a mover of worlds, your advice might be, you know, more concrete. The Coke machine smiled, and somehow Pete felt blessed just to have witnessed it. The problem is that there are millions of answers. The people who do well find the answers that are right for them. That's the point. Pete looked at the machine, which somehow now carried what he thought looked a little too much like an air of smugness. So you could have made a planet where everything was perfect. No pain, no death, and no sorrow. No starvation in the third world. No third world, for that matter. No crime, no class warfare, racism, sexism, or hostility. No midlife angst. No male pattern baldness. Why didn't you just do that? The machine sighed. You're asking why I didn't make paradise on Earth. Yes. Well, the answer to that question, my friend, is that I did. What? I did make paradise on Earth. You know, the whole Garden of Eden thing. But it didn't work. And people kept asking to exercise free will. And that comes back to what I was saying before. There are a million answers, but the key thing is that you need to choose the one or the ones that work for you and have the opportunity to experiment with the ones that don't for that matter. Pete looked around him. He was on a decaying street and could count 18 types of litter within 20 meters. A mangy dog was lying akimbo and he was talking to a vending machine, offering the wisdom of the ages. I'll give you some time to think about it. Quick, before you go, how long will you be here? As long as you need. But how long's that? That's the thing with free will. I can't tell you. The machine suddenly appeared infinitely radiantly loving, and then just as quickly reverted to its rusty, dusty, dented self. It was silent, and Pete knew that God had left the building. There was more he needed to know. If he could... Think of the right questions to ask. On the weekend, he and Lauren went to Paddington Market. They'd had a coffee and then Lauren had turned to him. Did you think more about what I said the other day? You mean, where are we going? Yeah, I've been thinking. He told her about the offer of promotion. Are you going to take it? I'm not sure. We need the money, she said. We need the money because you keep walking away from jobs, he wanted to say. I don't want you to do it if it's going to make you unhappy though, Pete. You'd just be miserable around the house and you'd blame me. I know you hate that I changed jobs, but it's because I'm looking for happiness. It's not the leaving I mind, it's the gaps between, he told her. She surprised him by taking his hand. I'm grateful that you're so patient with me. He hadn't thought of himself as being patient. There'd been lots of times earlier in their relationship where he knew he hadn't been patient with her at all. He supposed he was generally calmer now, but that was just because he was used to her. He'd realised that he wasn't going to change her, and he'd accepted that. Maybe that was patience of sorts. Sure, they still fought about plenty of other things, but not her jobs anymore. She kissed him and she smiled and kissed him again. They took a train to Central and then the bus up Oxford Street. Pete thought about her eternal search for the employment happiness that continually eluded her. She didn't know what she wanted either. It was fine for her to lob the question at him, but she was no wiser. At least he had an income. They reached the market and began the slow shuffle through the crowds. He tried to spot couples like them, distracted males and interested women. He stopped after a while and watched Lauren instead as she handled the figurine, some soap and a small bottle of essential oil. She didn't buy any of them. It was as if she just needed to touch them. He was standing outside another vendor, waiting as she tried on a dress when he saw something he totally wasn't expecting. Mum? The woman turned and it was indeed his mother. What are you doing here? She looked a little embarrassed. 
Shopping, she replied eventually. I mean, what are you doing in Sydney? You wanted me to visit you up there. You didn't tell me you were going to be here. Well, it's not really a family visit. Pete thought she looked decidedly uncomfortable. And then he understood why. Stephanie? His ex from, when, 14 years ago, approached them. Hi, Pete. Long time no see. He glanced over his shoulder, but thankfully Lauren was still immersed in choosing a dress. Did you run into Stephanie as well? He asked his mother. Again, the look that seemed to say she was up to something. Stephanie and I have remained in contact, she explained. We're friends. I visit her a couple of times a year. Pete looked to his mother and then to Steph. You don't come to visit me at all, he said. I told you he wouldn't understand, his mum said to Stephanie. He only ever thinks of himself, Steph replied, as if he wasn't there. In the dress stall, Pete could see Lauren take out her card to pay. I'd better be going, he said. Great to run into you both, he lied. If Lauren had seen his mother with Stephanie, she would have had a heart attack. Sunday was Lauren's big gym day. Three hours that included a workout, yoga and a sauna. She started at 10, leaving Pete and the cats alone in the house. Instead of the exercise that he should be doing, for the past couple of years, Pete had headed up the road to his favourite cafe for smoked salmon eggs benedict. He'd usually flick through the Sun Herald and bemoan the state of Australian journalism, but today, he had other things on his mind. There was his future with Lauren, whether he'd take the promotion, and what the hell his mother was doing in Sydney without letting him know. She'd always got on well with Steph, but Steph had her own idiosyncrasies when it came down to it. She was slightly narcissistic and very eager to hate Pete with a passion not long after they'd broken up. Pete had assumed the desire for separation was mutual, but it seemed that she quickly became keen on placing most of the blame on him. His mother had spoken up for Steph, which surprised him at the time because he had assumed, if there was a side to take, that she might have stuck up for him. There was no reason for her not to. It wasn't like he'd been abusive or manipulative. If anything, it was Steph who tried to turn certain events to her own advantage. Yes, Pete had insisted on taking Eldridge, their cat at the time, with him, but Eldridge had been his idea, his kitten, and his responsibility. The way his mother had explained Steph's side of the story, he might as well have run off with an actual child. And her new flat didn't even allow pets. He'd thought it strange at the time that his mother didn't seem to want to hear his point of view. But he'd let it go and moved on. She'd never connected with Lauren the way she had with Steph, though. And now, years later, they'd stayed in contact to the point his mother visited her while demanding he went up to her place. He finished his coffee and walked slowly home. Lauren started drinking around four that afternoon. It was her usual pattern, Pete realised. Quit, spend, drink, and eventually start looking for work. Then she'd go days, even weeks, without drinking until the amount would slowly start to creep up. He'd worried about it once, but seeing how long she went without it when times were good, he now suspected it was more a coping mechanism than anything too serious. He had a couple of glasses with her, but he didn't like to drink much on a Sunday night, especially with the prospect of meeting Doug the next day to decide the next 30 years of his life. He knew it wouldn't slow Lauren down, and it didn't. In fact, if anything, she sped up. He went to bed at 10, with her engrossed in a movie and already halfway through the second bottle. He thought he'd fight to sleep, but in fact, he nodded off quickly. Lauren inevitably woke him when she staggered in after one. Sorry, she said. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I know you have to work. I'm trying to be quiet. But there was her whole phone-dropping, undressing, bathroom routine to go on with. She rarely remembered coming to bed like this, and he took the opportunity to talk to her. This weird thing has been happening. What? Well, I've been talking to God, and he, or she, is inside a vending machine. Hmm. He wasn't sure how she'd react but he wasn't expecting a response that expressed surprise, but which was so obviously uncommitted. Did you hear what I said? I heard, I heard. Well, what do you think? Am I going mad? Do you think you're going mad? No, probably not. Me either. Sometimes I wish you would. It'd be fun to see you all manic and animated again, like you used to be when you were on a deadline at uni. If you went really bonkers, 
we'd at least have a few laughs before I had you locked away. He smiled in the dark at the thought. Thanks, hon, he told her. I've spoken to God, she said. He was surprised again. You have? Uh-huh. About a year ago. In a Coke machine? Don't be ridiculous. I saw him on my way to work. There were no other seats and I had to sit next to him. Just a stranger on a bus. Alarmingly, she started to sing. What did the almighty being say to you? He asked, desperately interrupting her before she embarked on an all-night singathon. Told me to be kind to myself. Is that all? I think there was something else, but... But what? Can't really remember. Pete thought for a moment. How did you know it was God? I mean, beyond the obvious wisdom inherent in those comments. He was very godlike. It was a he. Oh yeah. The full Old Testament version. Robes, long white hair and beard. Eyes so bright you couldn't look at them. He carried a staff. On the 422. No one seemed to notice. Well, for Newtown, it's not that unusual. He thought for a few moments, but before he could say anything else, she'd started to snore gently. He couldn't sleep. It started to rain. A persistent, soaking, heavy-dropped, Tasmanian-style rain. Somewhere out there, the forests were happy. His head was spinning with what Lauren had said and the surprise of seeing his mother. The issue of his impending conversation with Doug lingered on the edge of consciousness as well. Outside, the rain took it up another notch. Now it was from North Queensland. Pete wondered if God was hunkered down in his box amongst the cans of Coke and Sprite to stay dry, or if he was out dancing somewhere, skipping through the puddles and foxtrotting an invisible partner. Maybe he'd resurrected Gene Kelly for the occasion, Lazarus in a muddy puddle. That would be something to see. Monday morning was unnervingly bright. The world had been spring cleaned while he'd slept badly. There was no sign of Doug at work. Around 11, he casually mentioned to Eleanor on the front desk that he was going to get a soft drink. As simple as that. I have an appointment with God, he thought. Off to have a chat with my maker. With the decision about his job possibly needing to be made in the next few hours, Pete was certain God would be waiting. He could tell he or she wasn't there as soon as he came close to the Coke machine, though. There wasn't a speck of glory on it. In protest, Pete refused to buy a drink. He'd only taken a few steps away when he heard something. Psst. He looked around. There was no one there. Certainly not a divine representative of the Holy Trinity. Hey, psst. Pete. He turned slowly. Still no one. Only just near the footpath, lying sprawled between the bins, was the old dog. You looking for something? The dog was speaking. Pete's heart started racing. This was it, he thought. I have truly gone stark raving gaga. I've watched you chatting to the Coke machine. God's not there, is he? Or she. Do you know when he or she is coming back? People have been waiting for that for a long time. The dog stood slowly and shook dust from its shaggy black pelt. He wandered towards Pete with a limp. If you've been talking to God, then I think it's only fair that the other side has a chat to you as well. The dog sat down on its hind legs right in front of Pete. The other side? Pete asked, suddenly worried. Sure, said the dog. You don't think there was only one side, did you? How can you have something that exists with only one side? It doesn't make sense. If you have good, if you have love, if you have heaven then you need their opposites too for them to exist, don't you? Like hell and associated trappings and whatnot. I'm sure you know what I mean. The dog suddenly sounded very sinister. Pete's heart rate increased further. So if I've been talking to God in the machine, who am I talking to now? Are you? The dog scratched behind its ear. You really want to know the answer to that question? Pete tried to move away, but something kept him fixed to the spot. It's like this, the dog said. God goes on about the need for love and caring for others and all. But I have a different suggestion for you. Why not just worry about yourself? 
It's all anybody else does, isn't it? Why should you be any different? Lauren and your mother are perfect examples, aren't they? Doug, too, in his way. You should treat them with the same respect they have for you. That's great, but I have to make a decision about my job very soon. What do I do? What suits you, said the dog. What's going to make you the happiest? The money? Or what you have now? The dog suddenly started licking vigorously between its legs. The old joke, it said. You know why we lick here? Because we can. (laughs) Pete went to take a step away. Hey, I'm just messing with you. It's me. God, thought you liked a joke. I do. Wait, what? You're not... There's only me, no hell, you see, no antithesis in any form. Just the old Godmeister. Surely God hadn't just said, the old Godmeister. The dog trotted over to the Coke machine and promptly lay down and fell asleep. Come over here, God said to Pete, his or her voice now once again coming from the machine. Pete went over. Did you work out what question you wanted to ask me? A million questions had gone through Pete's mind, but only one remained. What do I do? God paused, then spoke again. See the coin slot? I want you to put your eye to it. I'm sorry? Not that hard, said God. Eye, slot, connect. Think you can manage. Pete leaned forward. I feel stupid. (laughs) You were just talking to a dog. Pete put his eye to the slot and realised there was a bright light shining through from the other side. He tried to focus. He thought he'd have to close his eye against the glare at one point, but found he could look through it, and... It was the prettiest place he'd ever seen. Not a landscape so much, although there were elements of one. Trees and water and rocks in various combinations and heights. But somehow not solid ethereal and subtly changing. People came and went, except they weren't quite people. They glowed. As they approached each other, they grew briefly brighter, and Pete realised he was literally seeing the love they had for each other. If love was a visible thing, above everything shone a silver sun, so bright he knew he could never look at it, yet which provided safety, shelter, salvation. He squatted there watching the scene through the tiny slot for hours, possibly days. Eventually, slowly, he pulled his eye away. Seen enough, asked God, you're not going to tell me what it was, are you? Do I have to? Pete thought, it was us, in our eternal reality, I'd guess. His heart was singing with the vision. He was immersed in the fading image of beauty and wonder and hope. That should tell you everything you need to know for now. I'll see you again, but I'm not going to tell you when. Speaking of time, I slowed it down for you. You'll have plenty of it to get back to the office with. And with that, the holy oracle of the eternal Lord once again became an old Coke machine. Pete walked slowly back to the factory. He was in temporal syrup, and even the birds were flying at half speed. It wasn't until he reached the gates that things returned to normal. He took out his phone and called Lauren. How's the job hunting? Casey came over and we've been having a few quiet drinks. I'll get started on it tomorrow. Everything okay? I have to ask you something. Last night, when you were drunk, you said you'd been talking to God. Only, did he show you anything? Show me anything. Any visions of a perfect world, perhaps? He could hear her pouring wine into her glass. He wiped the bus window because it had fogged up, but just a little bit, about as round as a 20-cent piece. Then he told me to look through it. And did you? Are you kidding me? What was I going to see but a bunch of rain and tailgates? Sounds like a country song, doesn't it? You didn't want to lean over him, I guess. No, I was... I was sitting next to the window. You told me he was already on the bus when you got on. He was. I sat next to him on the aisle seat. That's weird. When he wanted me to look out, I was near the window. We must have changed seats, although I don't remember doing it. 
kind of miraculous, wouldn't you say? Don't be stupid. And you definitely didn't look out. At a line of blinkers flashing? What would be the point of that? Pete didn't see God again until he died. He was 82 by then, and God greeted him as he emerged into the afterlife. Did I crash my air car? (laughs) God laughed in a very reassuring way. (laughs) Aortic aneurysm. Despite being given a priority flight path by ground control and the best efforts of the robo-surgeons, they couldn't save you. Of course they couldn't. It was your time. It's been a while since our last conversation. I told you we'd speak again, though. I wondered if you might appear in the machine once more. But after a while, I realized that it'd be here. Did you have a good life? Pete realized that this was a really important question, and his answer was actually the reason God was here waiting for him. Thanks. Yes, it was. I'm glad I listened to you. I'm happy with the decisions I made. For what it's worth, I laughed more than I cried. And I think my family loved me. Will I see them again, by the way? Of course you will. I'm proud of you, God added. I appear to everyone in the form that's best for them, but a lot of people don't want to see me. They started walking towards the Elysian fields, startling flocks of purple butterflies. There were children chasing them, laughing. You're going to love it here. God said. That was Michael Thompson reading Deuce Ex Coke Machina. If you want to hear more of Michael, look for his own podcast series, The Dunces. It's hilarious and I keep prompting him to have me in it. Please like Ear Movies or rate it or whatever your podcast platform has set up to say you enjoyed it, or even just tell your friends. And come back for more of Biological Poker, Season 1 of Ear Movies. I'm Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.